This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 164, The Earth. I'm Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. We follow up on last week's creation episode by talking about the land we inhabit and the role God gives us while we do so. We will discuss the nature of our stewardship and its implications for our own bodies, the folly of thinking we can really know what we're doing, what it means for the meek to inherit the earth, and how we can act responsibly with an uncertain future ahead of us. We'll start with what I've been preaching. It starts with Genesis 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Going through verse 28. You'll notice that sea and sky are both mentioned in this passage. We will get to the sea and the sky, Lord willing, in coming weeks. But he mentions earth twice, and it's pretty obvious even to the greatest swimmer or airplane pilot out there that we can exercise custody and stewardship over the earth in a way that will never be possible in the sea or in the sky. There is a sense, of course, in which human beings are responsible for all of the physical creation. But the land that we inhabit is special. And the responsibility that we have with regard to the land is special. This world is a proving ground. We demonstrate to God what kind of people we are in the way that we act in the flesh. And if we're worthy, then we get to inhabit the great paradise of God that is waiting for us after this life is over. The paradise that once was inhabited by human beings until we were found unworthy of it. It is our job and our privilege to embrace the life that God has given to us here. And we need to find joy in doing it. We need to embrace the idea that God has given us a magnificent creation around us. I know that we could nitpick and complain about the weather or the bugs or whatever it happens to be at any given time. There's always something that's falling short in our own estimation. But the bottom line is, whether it is sunny or cloudy, whether it's nighttime or daytime, whether it's warm or cold or in between, the world that we are living in is a magnificent thing. And it is truly a joy to be given the privilege of living life here and showing God through our activities in the earth how grateful we are for all of these things. He gets a little bit more specific with his responsibilities that he gives to us in Genesis 2 and verse 15 and following. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. We know this text, I think, very well. This text tells us, in the specific case of Adam and Eve, and in the broader sense we as human beings, that we are to tend the garden. As wonderful as the world is that is given to us, we have a responsibility to turn it in a way that will accomplish God's purposes in us, our own purposes for ourselves. I don't know exactly what kind of cultivating was required in that day, but I know what cultivating is required now 
If the earth is going to serve our interests, we have a responsibility to tend to it so that it will serve our needs or in a way that will serve our needs even better. And it's worth noting here also in the same context, we read through verse number 17 here, the role that is given to us is sufficient for us. There is a role beyond this that we can aspire to. What's described here is the knowledge of good and evil. And when we reach beyond our capacity, when we reach beyond our stewardship, we fall into disfavor with God and we wind up rejecting not only the role that he has given to us that was not good enough apparently for us, but also fellowship with God entirely. These same basic principles of stewardship, of taking care of what God has given us, apply to our own physical bodies as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he spends the last part of the chapter talking mostly about fornication, but he makes a general statement in verse number 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. If we have the ability to be custodians of any part of creation, surely the part that we can do the best with is what is maybe not truly ours. Ultimately, everything belongs to God. But as much as anything can be ours, our body is ours. And we show that same kind of stewardship in our bodies. We embrace life. We are grateful for what we have. However many or however few years we may have in this life, they come from God and we glorify him in that. And while we are here, we diligently pursue his things. We tend the garden. We watch for ourselves. We make sure that physically, emotionally, mentally, we are properly stimulated. We are properly groomed so that we can best accomplish the tasks that he has given to us that are required of us in a physical world with our families, with our society and especially in pursuit of a life of faith. And maybe even more important than any of that, we exercise modesty. We show the Lord that we are content where we are, where he has placed us, and we do not aspire to anything greater than that. We are willing and eager to acknowledge that we belong where he has placed us. We allow him to bestow on us whatever knowledge is appropriate, whatever wisdom is appropriate. And we maintain in our minds and in our hearts a respect for the greater wisdom, the greater knowledge that exists on high. By living lives of gratitude and diligence and modesty, we can accomplish in our own bodies what Adam and Eve were to accomplish in the physical world. We can be good stewards. We can be responsible. We can be judged as responsible by the Heavenly Father and ultimately enter into that great paradise that's waiting for us. This is what I've been reading. All right, we ought to state this at the outset. State of Fear by Michael Crichton is a work of fiction. And Michael Crichton is, or was rather, a fiction writer. That being the case, Crichton was a master of taking the real world and putting it in a fictional setting. State of Fear is his work on environmentalism. He includes a great deal of documentation. He cites dozens, if not hundreds, of articles, scholarly works that are proving the point that he is, or rather that his characters are making in the book. I think it would be fair to characterize Michael Crichton in the broadest sense of the word as an environmentalist. 
He is someone who clearly has a concern about the world that we live in, and rightfully so. I do as well. But in State of Fear, his characters are engaged in a pursuit of what is actually going on in the ozone layer, in the oceans, in the atmosphere, etc., etc. Are we really destroying the Earth? In fact, are we capable of destroying the Earth? And what we keep coming back to is, no, human beings are not having nearly the impact on the world as we might suppose sometimes. Yellowstone Park is the example that is cited, one example at least, in the book of an effort by human beings, perhaps the first great effort, to manage the world, to manage wilderness areas. Teddy Roosevelt, back in the day, set aside several million acres and said, we're going to let this be nature. We're going to leave it as it is. We're going to make sure that it stays as it is. We're going to preserve what we've come to call the balance of nature. And over the last 100 to 150 years or so, we have made efforts along these lines, trying to perfect our efforts at balancing out nature. And what we have found is, in the first place, we can't do it. But more than that, there is increasing doubt as to whether there even is such a thing as the balance of nature. The world is in constant flux, whether it's human beings changing the world, or whether it's termites, or whether it's beavers, or whether it is any other species that might be out there. The world is in constant change, and it's ridiculous for us to try to maintain something that doesn't even maintain itself, that cannot maintain itself. And of course, the problem gets worse because the actions that we take that supposedly are towards some kind of general good have effects, and oftentimes unintended effects. Killing off one species allows another species to proliferate, which impacts yet more species, etc. There are certain controls that we can exercise, and we ought to exercise those controls. And there are certain things that we can do that have an obvious negative impact on the world around us, and we need to try to avoid doing that. But ultimately, what we are doing is taking control of ourself, being responsible for what we own, for what we control, for what we touch. The best example of this, in my mind, is littering, which has perhaps not been completely obliterated in my lifetime, but certainly has increased in the public consciousness to the point where the overwhelming majority of Americans, at least, are horrified at the idea of throwing your trash wherever you feel like throwing it. That's a little thing, a supposedly little thing that we can do, but if 330 million of us are doing it, that may make an impact. Being responsible for what is immediately around me may not change the world. In fact, I pretty much guarantee it won't change the world. But maybe that's not such a bad thing. Maybe it is a blessing that we are limited in our control, that we are forced to take care of me, myself, and I. In a spiritual area, Paul makes this point to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 4 and verse 13, Paul writes, Until I come, give attention to the public teaching of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation. And note this, both for yourself and for those who hear you. 
Now, I don't think that Paul is saying here that if you preach properly, if you're a good Christian, that everybody you preach to is going to go to heaven. That's not his point. That's not what ensure means in this context. But what an encouragement it is to know that if I will simply do my job where I am, if I will be the best steward of what God has given me in my place, then I can be a courier of God's blessings, not only to myself and my family, but to my immediate surroundings as well. I can make some kind of impact for good. You're probably spinning your wheels if you're trying to save the world. The world is a really, really big place. There's a lot of people in it. Don't try to save the world. Save yourself. Save those who are around you. You be responsible where you are. Do the best where you are. And trust that God is going to use other people just like you to accomplish his purposes in other places. This is what I've been hearing. I'd like to read the first 11 verses of Psalm 37 for us here. Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, for it only leads to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Jesus seems to be referring to this passage, this phrase here of inheriting the land in the Beatitudes, where he says that the meek or the gentle are going to inherit the earth. And a lot of people have taken that passage to prove, allegedly, that the world that we are living in, this physical world that we currently inhabit, is going to be the place of a physical kingdom of Jesus Christ, that he will reign literally here on earth for a thousand years. Second Peter chapter 3 and other passages that talk about the destruction of such things couldn't possibly be meaning that because Jesus is going to be here. Jesus is going to be here among us in this world, and the faithful ones are going to inherit this land. It will not be destroyed. It will be given to you and me and all of the other faithful ones. I don't believe that's what this passage is saying. I don't believe that's what the Beatitudes are saying. If we were to properly understand what it means to inherit the land or inherit the earth, I think we need to go back here to Psalm 37 in the context of the Old Testament, where the idea of inheriting the land was a very prominent, very important principle in the minds of the Israelites. Remember, this goes all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This small family, these nomadic tribesmen, were going to be turned into a great nation, God says. Every nation on the earth would be blessed. And a big part of that blessing was going to be seen in the land itself. The land that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were wandering in was going to be given to the people. And we see this realized in the days of Joshua. As Joshua takes the people across the Jordan River and they begin driving out the indigenous tribes, this is God fulfilling his promise to the people. 
Now, they were not as effective as they could have been or should have been, but nevertheless, Joshua tells us specifically that God kept his promises to the people. They inherited the land. And every subsequent generation also inherited the land. Nobody lost their inheritance. As long as they were alive, as long as the nation was alive, they received the land generation by generation. I believe that's what David is emphasizing here in Psalm 37, that if you will trust in God, if you will believe that he is watching over you, that he is protecting you, it is not going to be necessary for you to go outside of the proper parameters for your life. You don't have to exercise judgment on your own. You don't have to exercise vengeance on your own. God says he will do that. That's what meekness is. That's what gentleness is, a willingness to allow forces to go on without your interruption, without your intrusion, trusting that simply doing good, being good as God defines good, will accomplish God's purposes and your own purposes in your life. Do we believe that God will give an inheritance to his people? That's the question. And we see the same question forming itself over and over again in our own lives. When we are separated, of course, from the land promise, we are not given a promise that the land of Israel is going to be ours. And yet we are inheritors of tremendous spiritual blessings in this life and in the next life. And oftentimes we do not have enough faith to simply allow God to give it to us on his schedule. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Not that this physical earth or this physical land is going to be given to us, but whatever God has in mind for us, physical blessings or spiritual blessings, everything that God has in mind for us is going to be ours. Do we have enough faith to believe in that? Because I assure you, the plans that he has for his kingdom, his spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, absolutely dwarf whatever kind of plan he had for the nation of Israel. In fact, the cornerstone of his hope for the nation of Israel was to create the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is how we become great in the eyes of God. This is how we should become great in the eyes of brothers and sisters in Christ and in our own eyes, not by asserting ourselves, not by controlling things, not by taking dominion ourselves over the world that is around us, but by rather acknowledging God's dominion, serving where he has placed us, certainly doing the best we can where we are, but allowing greater issues, allowing dominion of the world to stay within his jurisdiction. We're not capable of doing that anyway, are we? So let's not try. Allow God to do his things while we busy ourselves doing our own things. I promise you, if you will content yourself with simply being a Christian, with simply doing what God has told you to do, the issues of the world, the big issues, including the issues that are touching your life, God will sort those things out. I'm not saying that he is going to remove all of your problems. I am saying he is going to find a way to get you through your problems or around your problems or over your problems or in some fashion allow you to deal with these situations so that you can get back to the task of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is God's assurance to you. Be meek enough to believe him. This is what I've been playing. One of the reasons that we hesitated to buy Cascadia, the game we featured in this space last week, was because we already had a game called Habitats, which functions very much the same as Cascadia. 
you're building a zoo, essentially, not a wild habitat like in Cascadia. It's a zoo, and you are drafting animals to place into your zoo. It's more complicated than that, of course, but we'll leave it at this. You're basically setting your animals up for success by providing them an environment that works for them, very much like Cascadia. There are a few basic differences. One, the most obvious difference, is Cascadia is a much better looking game than Habitats. Habitats is fine, as far as that goes, but won't hold a candle to Cascadia. From a functional standpoint, though, from a game perspective, the biggest problem I have with Habitats is this. You score points at the end of the game for all of the animal tiles that you have properly situated in your environment, in your zoo. But there are bonus points also. The game has three rounds. There are three different sets of tiles that are placed out there for you to draft. And at the end of each of these rounds, there are bonuses to be passed out. Maybe at the end of the first round, you get a bonus for the largest lake area, or the most flowers, or the longest distance east to west, whatever it happens to be. The idea is that you spend that round orienting your park, not only to be suitable for the animals, but also to score these bonus points. But then the first round ends, and the second round begins, and new tiles are laid out there, and brand new bonus tiles are set out there, and you have no idea what these bonuses are going to be ahead of time. And it very well may be, in fact, it usually is the case, that the things that you have been doing in the first round not only do not help you in your pursuit of these bonuses in the second round, they may have actually been working against those interests. And it's not because you did anything wrong. It's just because you got unlucky. That's an aspect of gameplay that I tend not to like. I like it when I'm able to see the changes coming in advance and prepare for them. You can't do that in Habitats. Habitats is a fine game. We enjoy it. But I suspect, just in case you're wondering, and I know you are, that we're going to be playing Cascadia a lot more than we're going to be playing Habitats. Habitats does teach me, though, to play in the moment more than playing for big picture things. Lots of the games that we play have end-game goals that are going to provide a huge number of points. And you absolutely need to tailor your game toward that. I found the best way to play Habitats is not to do that. To play each round individually and not worry about what might be coming, what might not be coming. If you want to pursue the bonuses that are available to you in this round, then do that. And if you don't, don't worry about it. Because maybe the next round the bonuses are going to be easier to acquire. Focus on what you have and don't focus nearly so much on what you don't have or what you might have. I like what Solomon says about this in Ecclesiastes, a couple of places. Chapter 5, for instance, verse number 18 and following. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. You find joy where you are, and it keeps you from finding despair in the absence of things you don't have. He writes in chapter 2, verse 18, Thus I had hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. 
What a waste. But since I don't have any control over it, I don't stress about it. I don't worry about it. I simply live where I am in the moment. The Hebrew writer refers to it like this. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there be not in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, in that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Our job is not to control the future. Our job is not even to know the future. But rather, as long as it is called today, show up for work in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Do what he has required you to do. Trust that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. To use the phrase from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, believe that simply by being the best you can be where you are, exercising custody over this little piece of the earth that God has given you, you show yourself to be worthy. And remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, after the parable of the unrighteous steward, the one who is faithful in the little is faithful also in much. You are showing yourself in your little corner of the earth to be the kind of person that God wants you to be. God sees that, God acknowledges that, and one day God will reward that. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.